Well, good morning. And happy Easter to you. Now, don't act surprised. We celebrate Easter for 50 days. It's an Easter season. So happy Easter. And every Sunday anyway, when we gather together as God's people, it is a mini Easter and we celebrate the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I also recognize today is also a special day. It is Mother's Day. Um, from time to time, I will uh, pray prayers and uh, have different readings and sayings. And uh, this morning, I would like to read this to you in honor of mothers. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we desperately need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who've experienced abuse at the, at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way that you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming years, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We remember you. Happy Mother's Day. I'd like to begin this sermon by looking at our readings from the Acts of the Apostles. In the beginning of Acts chapter 13, among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria, Paul and Barnabas were appointed and commissioned through fasting and prayer and laying on of hands for the special work of sharing the gospel to the Gentiles on what is known as the first missionary journey from Antioch. Antioch was a busy cosmopolitan center of trade, religious excitement, and high levels of intellectual and political life. 
This city played an important role in the book of Acts, and Nicholas from Antioch became one of the first deacons in the early church, and we could read more about that in Acts chapter 6. Jewish Christians fled to Antioch from fierce persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem, and we could read about that in Acts chapter 11. It became an important center for early uh, combined Jewish and Gentile Christianity, and the church there helped support the church in Jerusalem that was experiencing a famine. We could read about that in Acts chapter 11. Antioch continued as an important center for the development of Christianity until about the 700s AD. So there is more background in chapter 13 that leads us to our text this morning that I just don't have the time to talk about. However, you can read it for yourself. So I'd like to begin where we started, and that is in um, chapter, excuse me, verse 26. So starting with verse 26, Paul reviewed the shameful treatment Jesus had, had received involving unjust condemnation and death. But God raised Jesus from the dead as proved by many witnesses. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essence of the gospel. And this message provides good news, and the results of this good news is that through Jesus Christ, sinners can experience the forgiveness of sins. Nonetheless, this message must be met with repentance and faith. So Paul appealed for them to believe the message about Jesus Christ and that through him there is forgiveness of sins. Paul is saying that something new is happening under your very noses and unless you join in, you're going to miss out because God is doing a new thing. Now I'd like to pause for just a moment. This language of God is doing a new thing is often misused and abused by many, many preachers in the church. It is often used to convey some kind of special knowledge that they have, these secrets that God is revealing to them and through them. Or it is shared to get people to move in a new direction that the preacher wants them to go, which places a lot of pressure upon them or God pressure upon them to follow in the ways that they're, that they're saying. And to be honest, it makes me very nauseous when I hear these words because of the abuse that's taken place in the church. But in the time of Jesus Christ ushering in the kingdom of God and the church proclaiming this good news, it is and still is a new thing in the life of all who listen and respond. And it is only in this context that this phrase should be used and understood. God is doing a new thing. And the new thing that He had long planned and promised. And when that happens, it isn't just something one might think about and discuss around the supper table for the next couple of years talking about which generation of music is best between the 70s, 80s, or the 90s, or talking about uh, crime or the homelessness or how we can be less dependent upon oil. It is much more like someone rushing into our service this morning and announcing a tsunami is going to hit the western coast in exactly two hours. And if you want to move inland, do it right now. So that's the kind of urgency that has taken place in our reading. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the main subject of this second half of Paul's address, has introduced a new note of urgency into everything. Jesus is risen. 
So new creation has begun. Jesus is risen. So God has at last fulfilled His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses and David and the other prophets. It is through Jesus that God is bringing in the new world order, the new creation where God will make the world right and make all things new. So no longer just for one man or one family, but for all people. And there is no contradiction here. As Paul would insist, it is because God has been faithful to His promise in and through Jesus that the message can now go out to the entire world. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And those who follow Him are Messiah people. They are Christ-like people. They are Christians. And on that, this basis, the Word of God is going out to renew and heal and transform the entire created universe. The Scripture spoke about the coming Messiah being rejected by His people and unconsciously fulfilled the, those prophecies. This is a twist in the story which takes us deep um, uh, down into the mystery of God's call of Israel in the first place. So when God wanted to save the world, he called a people whom he knew to be part of the problem as well as being, from then on, the bearers of the solution. And by the way, nothing's changed. When God wants to raise a community, what does he do? He raises up a community of faith. And even though they've been part of the problem of sin in the world, God wants to use these people to be part of the solution. The good news So this is one of the hardest things that Paul has to say, but it can't be avoided that all Jews and Gentiles alike must be humbled before God if they are to receive his rescue and his new creation. So this is a gift of grace and it's not a favor automatically reserved for a special few people. The new world that God is creating through the death and the resurrection of Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. And as I've said and as we know, This is the good news of the gospel. At every level, your sins and my sins, the wickedness, the foolishness, the failing, the rebellion, the shameful, dirty, lying, cheating, glittering, sophisticated, flashy, corporate, international, global, local, personal, individual, omission and commission, the whole lot, all dealt with because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the law of Moses enabled us, as Paul talks about in verses 38 and 39, to get rid of a good deal of sin, to be declared in the right in relation to them. But there were all kinds of other things still muddying up the waters, and they can now all be sorted out. Nothing needs to stand in God's record against us anymore. So we can be declared to be in the right, forgiven, a full and free member of God's people. Why? Because of the cross and the empty grave, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So watch out in case you miss out. No wonder they followed Paul and Barnabas down the street and asked to hear some more. No wonder, too, that Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in God's grace. The whole address was about grace. The great story of God's amazing grace and mercy to the world, to the human race, to Israel, now coming to its climax in Jesus Christ. Stick with the story, they say. Learn it, live it, and live from it. 
Don't imagine that you can possess it. Let it possess you. I think that's something for all of us, right? So we're told in our gospel reading from John that Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, obviously, the text that we read uh, this morning is in a larger understanding and context, and certainly it's in that, that passage of him being the good shepherd. A shepherd is utterly committed to his flock. He lives and dwells with them day and night, and he knows each of the sheep. He knows their moods, their likes, their, their, their needs, and their dislikes. Sheep are not like cows that need to be driven or forced. A good shepherd leads, feeds, and bleeds for his sheep. He never drives them. So the image of the good shepherd, the shepherd who will give his life for his sheep, is that of servant leadership. Jesus, the good shepherd, has given his life for us, his sheep. And having been raised from the the dead, he now leads us into green pastures. And we can see the image here of Psalm 23. In some of the lectionaries, um, they use Psalm 23 as the psalm for this Sunday. So I'd like us to close this sermon, not that I'm ending in the next minute or two, so please don't get the wrong impression. I'm just saying the close of the sermon, meaning this is going to be the last text I'm going to be talking about before I close. I'd like us to look at Revelation of St. John the Divine. Now, I want to say this is a mouthful. There's a lot going on in the text. I hope that you'll follow me, uh, that you'll understand what's being um, communicated, because there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding on the book of Revelation. And let me just give you a quick overview. This is not all a futuristic book of all that is to come. That the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's all going to blow up and come to ruin. And Jesus is going to come back and take us away somewhere else. That's a misunderstanding that many of us have grown up with. But this is written around, roughly around 90, 95 AD, somewhere in that time frame. And it was talking about what was to come, the persecution that was about to take place, was starting to take place, and continued to take place in the early church. And it was a book that was written, an, um, an, uh, an apocalyptic book, that was written to give hope to the church. Now, obviously, there were some things that was to come, and that was particularly at the very end of Revelation, particularly Revelation 21. Um, but it's a book to give hope to persecuted Christians. And I hope that that gives you some context um, and, and also one other thing I want to say, because I didn't talk about this in the first service, and I think it would have helped if I had just stopped and talked about it. We often talk about that we're going to be taken away to heaven forever, and we're going to spend eternity in heaven. But, as the, but the Bible actually talks about heaven being a place that when people die, that they, when they are believers, they're going to be with God in heaven. But there's going to be a day when Jesus Christ comes again, And when he's going to come to this earth, then he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And then that's where we're going to be spending forever with him. And so I hope that you understand that in the context of where I'm going for the remainder of this short little time and passage. So let's dig in. So John is sending this book to a community that is facing a nightmare. Persecution is on the way and they must be ready for it. And though we're living in a new world order where God is making all things new, we are still living in a broken and messed up and chaotic world. So we're waiting for Jesus to return to truly and fully make all things right and new. And Jesus, the good shepherd, already told us 
that we will be persecuted for the faith. Though he is making the world right, Christians will still be persecuted by those who refuse to submit and follow Jesus Christ and for those who are willing and do everything in their power to stop the furtherance of the kingdom of God. So more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than at any other time in history. In the 21st century is following the same pattern. Christians this very day are losing their lives. Christian villages are being destroyed and churches are being burned and destroyed. And just like those Christians in the early church that John is addressing in this letter, we are still being persecuted and Christians are still being martyred. And we need to listen to the things that St. John has to say. So John is telling the Christians that persecution is on the way and they must be ready for it. So what he is offering them here is part of his continuing vision. And it's a vision not of nice dreams in his head, but of a heavenly reality that is absolute and utterly true. This, he says, is the ultimate reality of the situation. We must hold on to it for dear life as we plunge back in to the nightmare. So the reality is that the Creator God and the Lamb have already won the victory. The victory which means that those who follow the Lamb are rescued from harm. I'm going to pause for a moment. We talk about this often. But remember that the kingdom of God was ushered in by Jesus Christ. And that the kingdom of God will be ushered in in its fullness when He comes back again. And we're living in the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And so we're experiencing a little bit of the kingdom. We're going to experience it in its fullness. And he tells us to pray for more of God's kingdom now like it is in heaven. So we're praying that the kingdom as it is now in heaven right now, we're praying for more of that to come on earth as it is today. We're praying for more of what the kingdom is going to be like one day when he comes back again, praying for more of that kingdom to come now today. Do you understand what I mean? So that's, the, that's the kind of what we're talking about here. So the reality is that the people who claim the Lamb's protection may well have to come through a time of great suffering, but they will then find themselves in the true reality, in God's throne room, worshiping and serving Him day and night with great, abundant, and exuberant joy. And we find that in our text today. So there was a vast crowd of believers, too great to count, clothed in white, For victory and purity, this crowd is carrying palm branches as a further sign of victory celebration, and they can't restrain their enthusiasm. They are shouting out their delight and praise and thanks to God and the Lamb because they have won the victory which has brought them their rescue. So one of the things I wanted to say when I was retelling that story just a moment ago, but forgot to say, was that Jesus did pay it all. He He won the victory in his death and his resurrection, but ultimate victory is going to come when he comes back again. So do you see that tension? He's won the victory, but he's going to come back and ultimately bring that victory when everything is made new when he returns. So it's kind of like that, the difference between D-Day and V-Day, as we've talked about before. So the word salvation in verse 10 literally means rescue. So the shout of praise continues into verse 12, where the great cloud of the redeemed recognize with joy that everything good, noble, powerful, and wise comes from God himself. So John, we remind ourselves, is in the heavenly throne room, which is also the heavenly temple, the counterpart to the temple in Jerusalem. 
So he is not simply looking on from a, dis, a great distance in a fly-on-the-wall fashion. He is right there with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And one of those elders now speaks to him, asking him the question, Who are these people? And the elder himself supplies the answer, and the answer that John's communities badly need to hear. These are those who have come out of the great suffering. They have died for their faith, These are the martyrs. They have lived through the nightmare and can now wake up to a glorious, fresh, new morning. The reason their clothes are white is not because they've necessarily lived holy and perfect and pure lives, but because of the blood of the Lamb, the sacrificial Passover-like death of Jesus Christ Himself, has rescued them from slavery to sin, making them able at once to stand in the very presence of the living God. So God will not only allow them, welcome them into his presence, he will shelter them with his presence. God's presence is a way of speaking of his glorious presence in his temple. And the word for shelter them means literally that God will pitch his tent over them as he pitched his tent in the midst of the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. And all the blessings of the Jerusalem temple, in other words, will be theirs. And more besides, because of this point, John glimpses the future, the vision of the new Jerusalem itself. We are not there yet because there is still a temple here and there won't be one in the final city as we were just talking about in Revelation 21. But as so often in Revelation and in Christian thinking generally, present and future overlap and they interlock in various ways that sometimes can be a little confusing. And already some of the blessings of this final city are to be experienced by these people, by these people who John is eager to say, are you who are about to suffer? So he is wanting us to experience some of the benefits of the way it's going to be one day now. So God will protect them from the elements and from hunger and thirst. And in a wonderful role reversal, The lamb who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin is also the good shepherd who leads his people to springs of living water. Think about that. And in a final anticipation of the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21, that will happen after he comes again. God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's an intimacy about that promise which speaks volumes for the whole vision of God throughout the book. Yes, God is rightly angry with all of those who deface His beautiful creation and and make the lives of their fellow humans miserable and wretched. But the reason that He is angry is because at His very heart, He's so full of mercy That his most basic characteristic is to come down from heaven, from his throne, in person, and wipe away every tear from every eye. That's his desire. That's the kind of God that we love and we serve. Learning to think of this God when we hear the word God rather than instantly thinking of a faceless heavenly administrator or a violent celestial bully is one of the most important ways in which we are to wake up from the nightmare and embrace the reality of God's true day. That God is a God of love and mercy and compassion. He's not some cosmic bully up there ready to knock you over the head for doing something wrong. We need to get rid of that picture. 
He is a God of love, mercy, and compassion. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And God rose, raised him from the dead so that we can experience forgiveness of sins and be part of God's redeeming work of renewing the world. Nonetheless, we will be persecuted for our faith. But our hope is in this life, his kingdom, and the life to come, and the life to come after he comes again. This fourth Sunday of Easter, it reminds us that we have a leader, we have a good shepherd, whose voice we are to hear, whose voice we are to follow. The shepherd's willingness to lay down his life for the sheep demonstrates ultimate love, and it gives us a pattern of the way that we're to live our lives and following Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. And no matter what happens to us, his sheep, he is there and will provide in this life and the life to come for his people. Amen. Yeah, so I invite you to get, if you would, if you get your children.